So glad to be back with you. Don't pay any attention to this. They're going to they're gonna shoot me from here, you know, so uh, you won't have to look at that. But, uh, you know, it's, I, I told them, I said, we don't really need a bumper, the regular bumper. We could just play the Terminator music or something, you know, and especially we could have the part at the end of the first movie where it's just a, you know, just a skeleton of a, a metal skeleton with no legs coming like this, coming up. I said, I'll probably be coming in like that for too long. I don't know what's going on, but, you know, I, I am so glad to be back with you. I miss it. I miss it, I think, so much more than you guys do. And, um, but the good thing is this thing does double as a, a George Foreman grill. So it's pretty, pretty cool to just have it with you. I want to talk to you this morning about a, really a pretty deep subject. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of us in this room that are dealing with it. Every week or so, someone will come up to me as a pastor and say, Pastor, I just don't understand. They'll ask me a really philosophical question. I don't understand how you can believe in a good, all-powerful God that loves you when there's so much evil and suffering in the world. And you know what? I think that's a, I mean, that's a great, that's a valid question. That's a, a good question. If God allows suffering home to us when suffering hits home, it's not a philosophical question anymore, is it? It's like, God, where are you? What's going on here? Who are you? Are you there? Are you good? Are you powerful? Laura was reading a book yesterday that she had picked up, and it was, the author was going through some deep struggles, some deep trials, and uh, he worked at a large church up in Chicago, and, and it was, uh, she said, this is a really good book. She said, I'm gonna check him out and see what he's doing now. And you know what he's doing now? He's leading one of the leading groups of agnostics and atheists. It's, it's, a, it's a secular uh, humanist group, he calls it, you know, that's to say that there's only man is the ultimate God, and, and that's it. He's got hundreds and hundreds of thousands, really, of followers. He didn't make it through suffering, that's for sure. He didn't make it. She said, maybe I won't recommend that book, you know. But if you believed in a good God and, and, and you believe that he cares and that he's all-powerful, but then for the very first time that you experience that deep suffering or abuse, it really tests your belief in God, doesn't it? How could a good and powerful God allow something like that to happen to me? Well, let's look. When we think of injustice and unjust suffering in the Bible, we think of the oldest book in the Bible. That's the book of Job. It was written 2,000 years before Christ. And let's just take a look real quick at the first chapter of Job and see what it says. I wrote it, I put it up on the screen for you. It's not, it's not in your little notes there, but on the screen, look at it with me. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. <clears throat> he feared, which is inward awe and wonder, he feared God and shunned evil. So this first verse tells us that Job was a really good man. He lived in the land of Uz. Where was that? That's where the wizard was, right? The wizard of, no, not where the wizard of Uz. But here's the thing. 
It's right where the Dead Sea probably is today, but it's 2,000 years before Christ. It's a long time ago. And he's a really good man. He really loves God. And he stays away from evil. Verse two, he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He was like the, the, the Jeff Bezos or the, or the Warren Buffett of his day, except he, he loved God with all his heart. Verse 13, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, probably maybe celebrating like his 30th birthday, a messenger comes running up to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and a band of Sabians, another tribe nearby, attacked and made off with them and they put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. I don't know how I made it out. While this guy's still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger comes and says, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house it collapsed on them. They're all dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And you thought you were having a bad day. I mean, look at Job. Look at what's happening here. And what does Job do? At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, which I think is always a good idea. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Wow, I don't know, I, don't, I mean, I don't think I'm Job. I don't know that that's what would have been happening with me. But the, the book of Job goes on to say that Job starts to doubt. He, he prays to die and he wishes he had never been born. He says, I wish I'd never seen the light. And he's angry and he tells God, God, I haven't done anything wrong. You're unjust, you're uncaring, something's wrong here. And then Job's friends, you know, come to encourage him, which with friends like that, who needs enemies? They tell him, Job, we love you, buddy, but you obviously have sin in your life because God is judging you. You see, trauma victims, I read not long ago as I was studying up on, on trauma, often feel that their ongoing trauma is their fault. It feels safer to think I'm causing this to happen, especially children when they're abused. I'm causing this to happen seems safer than that the world is an unsafe, dangerous, out of control place that I have no control over at all and I don't know when something's gonna come in and hit me and get me. Job's friends are doing this. Job, it's gotta be your fault because our world is safer that way. If it's not your fault, I mean, if you're really blameless, then this could happen to me. It's kinda like some of us feel like we have a deal with God, you know, follow him and miss all the suffering and, 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 and disobey and uh-oh, here it comes, judgment. 
Job's wife, she comes along as a big encouragement. She says, Job, curse God and die. What a woman. But I might have been there too. You know, when people ask the big question, why would God allow this to happen? There are always two answers that I hear. And what's interesting is both of them are wrong. The first answer I hear is, don't you question God. He has reasons beyond your little peanut head mind, right? And therefore, you just better accept everything. Don't question. Eh, wrong. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible promises trials and tribulations, but the Bible says he's your father. He's a good father. You can hurt, you can cry, you can wail, you can curse, you can doubt, but run into his arms as you do that. Second answer I hear all the time is, you know, I just don't know what God's up to. I have no idea at all about what, what's going on. What, why are these things happening? There's no way to make any sense of it all. Uh, it's just random. It's just out of control. Wrong also. Though, of course, we don't have the full answer that we'll ultimately get. The Bible gives us some really strong clues. In fact, they're clues that will change your life this morning if we really get them, if we really understand it. Have you ever seen someone who really gets it? It's rare. So the world takes notice. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching America's Got Talent, and the world discovered an incredible young woman, Jane Marcheski. I mean, she's kind of a modern-day Job to me, and I want you just to enjoy this with me, and especially I want you to notice Simon Cowell and his, his, the way he, his expression and how she touches this cynical man. If you're online, YouTube is blocking this, so um, I think we're putting up a, a, a something for you to be able to click on it and slide on over there, open another window and go over and look at it. It's about seven and a half minutes long, but I want you to see the whole thing. So it'll be blank online for just a few minutes. Don't leave us, go over there and look at that because this is important. And I've got some really important things to say after that. Take a look, Jane Marcheski. She calls herself Nightbird. Yeah, amazing, huh? And, you know, she got that golden buzzer, which means that she'll be at the live singing, I mean, doing the things in the contest in August. Let's pray for her that she makes it. I told Laura, I said, that girl has to be a believer, and I went and found her blog, and she sure is. And there's some things in, yeah, you can clap for that, because I don't think you can make it if you're not. Peter, in his little book in the New Testament, in his first chapter, he tells us some really strong clues about how to make it through this, this whole big question, and where we should even take our question to Peter knows what suffering is. He's suffered as a disciple. He's gone through a lot of stuff. In fact, at the end of his life, he's gonna be crucified upside down. They were getting ready to crucify him. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. <clears throat> and so they said, well, we'll take care of that. So they turned him upside down and crucified him. And he's writing to a group of people who have undergone tremendous suffering and evil 
coming against them. And there is getting ready to be a huge wave that he knows is coming against them again. And he says, what do we do with this? What do we, what do, we do with this haunting question? How can God be good and all-powerful and allow suffering and evil to continue? What do we do with that question? And he said, here's what we do. Number one, you might wanna write these things down. Bring your question to the cross. First, in, in verse three, he said, blessed is God, the father of our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, because he's raised Jesus, the anointed from death. He's talking about Jesus, death on the cross, his resurrection. What he's saying, first, let's take that big question to the cross. And as we stand in front of the cross, let's ask that question, God, why are you allowing suffering and evil to continue? Listen, at first it seems the cross is silent. And you know, the truth is that the cross gives us a lot of clues about things, but it, it, it doesn't tell us the answer to that question. But then we realize the cross is speaking loudly. It's speaking loudly to us, not to tell us what the answer to that question is, but to tell us what the answer to that question cannot be. It just can't be. It can't be because he doesn't care. The cross is saying the answer can't be because he doesn't love us. On the cross, we see the ultimate wonder. I mean, God, the God of the universe, he comes down to us sufferers and, and to our shock, God suffers. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to be spit on and beat and tried unjustly. He knows what it feels like to suffer and die. And so the cross gives us this incredibly empowering hint. The very first thing, if you grasp it, It'll begin to transform you. Reach out and get hold of it. It can't be because he doesn't care. So let's take the question somewhere else. Number two, bring your question to the one on the cross. Verse four says, through his great mercy, we've been reborn into a living hope, an eternal inheritance held in reserve in heaven that will never fade or fail, living hope. The book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus dying on the cross for a great joy, for a living hope set before him. For the joy, for the hope set before him, he endured the cross. Now, what was it? What was the only thing that he didn't have in heaven that drove Jesus to come here and die on a cross? I mean, he was the king of the universe. He had perfect fellowship with God. Everything was under his control, under his feet. There was only one thing that he didn't have. You. You. You were the joy set before him. Relationship with you, the God of the universe, knew that our ancestors from the very first man and woman had sinned and rejected his plan and we followed right in their footsteps and he says, I'm gonna make a way back. I want you. Now, 
Some of us go, me, why would he do that for me? But you see, he already sees you as you step into that journey as a believer. He already sees you beautified, unspoiled, unfading, perfect, restored, resurrected, glorified you. You were his living hope. So what Peter's saying here is, so make him your living hope. He's living, he's alive. Trust his heart, step into that. Say, you're my living hope, you're the only hope, you're everything. But also bring your question number three, to the empty tomb, to the resurrection, to heaven, really. Verse three, blessed is God, the father of our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, because he's raised Jesus, the anointed from death through his great mercy. We've been reborn into a living hope for an eternal inheritance held and reserved in heaven that will never fade or fail. An eternal inheritance held in reserve in heaven, but it's living, it's a living hope. It's alive right now, reborn into a living hope. What, what is all this? As we ask the resurrection, as we ask heaven, why do you allow suffering and evil to continue? John, the apostle, was suffering greatly. He had been sent to the Isle of Patmos. He was, he was pushed off there, a little island. He's all by himself. They drop in food every once in a while, hopefully. He's suffering for being an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. But while he's there, God begins to speak to him and show him some visions. And I think maybe even translate him through time. And he's the one who writes there on the Isle of Patmos. He writes the book of Revelation about what's gonna happen as it all wraps up. But the second to the last chapter, chapter 21 of Revelation says something that is mind-numbingly profound. All of a sudden, whether in vision or he's there, we don't know, but he sees the future and he says this in chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were completely gone. I, I heard a loud voice from the throne and it, it said, look, God now makes his home with the people. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sadness, no more crying, no more pain. Things are no longer the way they used to be. And he who sits on the throne said, so who's that? Jesus. Jesus stands up and he says this, I make all things new. That's what he says. I make all things new. Also, he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. They are accurate, incorruptible, and trustworthy. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he said, this is amazing because we realize God is not preparing us for some ethereal, abstract, spiritual existence that's just a kind of compensation for the, the life that we lost through suffering and evil here on, uh, on the earth. New heavens and new earth. Living hope means this body transformed, but it's still 
me. This world transformed, but it's still this world. Our bodies, our homes, our loved ones, restored, returned, perfected, beautified, given back to us, it all comes back the way it should be. Do you get that? That's life transforming. Paul says, suffering and death will be swallowed up by victory. Now, I don't know about you, but when I swallow something, it becomes a part of me. It enlarges me. Every suffering will be swallowed up and become part of the victory. Dostoevsky, he said it like this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, and it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what has happened. In the last book of The Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji, he, he wakes up thinking everything is lost and discovering instead that all his friends were around him, and he cries out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought, I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the Bible's answer is yes. If the resurrection is true, then the answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Everything sad will unwind and come untrue. I am making all things new. Did he say some things? He said all things. Imagine with me an old woman. She's about to die, getting her last breath, got that death rattle. She expects to wake up in heaven. She's been a believer. She stepped into this journey with Christ a long time ago. But man, she's had a lot of, a lot of stuff go on because she was abused as a child and she's had a lot of trouble with men. Three marriages, never could quite get it all together. He had a lot of counseling. And she breathes her last and she opens her eyes expecting to wake in heaven. Instead, she wakes to find she's six years old. She's lying in a little bed with white lace her childhood bed. And it's like everything is brighter and, and, and strong. It's like it's an 8K. It's like she's lived, you know, an HD life for sure. But this is like super HD. This is like 128K. It's like everything is more vibrant. It's night, but her light is on because she remembers that's how she always slept. She was so scared. And suddenly she knows what's about to happen. And it's gonna cause her to struggle with men 
all of her life. And the door creaks open and her teenage stepbrother comes into the room, the one who committed suicide when he was 30. But suddenly, Jesus is there. And he takes her brother back to the door and Jesus puts his hands on her brother's shoulders and she can't hear what he's saying, but he's speaking low and he's looking right into his eyes and she can see how much he loves her brother. And her brother begins to weep. She can't remember him crying ever. When his weeping subsides, Jesus, as he's pulled him close and he's holding him to his chest, Jesus walks him to the door and lets him out and he flips the light off. And as he flips the light off, you notice he begins to glow. I mean, he's glow, probably glowing all along, been glowing. And, and, and it's like a, something warm about it, something inviting about it. And, and Jesus turns and he walks to the chair beside her little bed and he sits down and he says, little one, I will be here all night and every night. Everything sad will unwind and come untrue. I make all things new. Now you apply that to your life, to your traumas, to the things that have happened with you. I make all things new. So profound. Did you know that was going to happen? What do you think it is to have a new heaven and a new earth? Number four, bring your question to the one walking beside you in the fire. See, don't let suffering destroy your faith. Many do, many, many fall away. But look what Peter says, verse five, through faith, God's power His power is standing watch, protecting you for a salvation that you will see completely at the end of things. You should greatly rejoice in what is waiting for you, even if now for a little while you have to suffer various trials. Suffering tests your faith, which is more valuable than gold. Remember gold, though it's perishable, it's tested by fire so that if it is found genuine, you can receive praise, honor, and glory When Jesus, the anointed, our liberating king, is revealed at last, trials don't have to destroy your faith. They can actually strengthen your faith, purify our faith. They test our faith to see if it's real faith. Or do I just love God for his blessings? Do I just love him for what he can do for me? Do you trust him when you don't understand him? Do you trust him? When, he, when he, he's doing something that's not what you want him to be doing or you think he's even supposed to be doing, this isn't right, this isn't. But see, God is doing something profound. The making of a key would be such a strange thing if you'd never seen a lock. I mean, if you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and, and, and you, you get that, that, that key machine now, they don't even have a person doing it anymore in a lot of those places, but there's that awful grinding sound. <laughs> Feels like you're at the dentist again, oh, right? And the sparks are flying and there's that smell of burnt metal and, and, and what are you doing to that defenseless little key? I mean, what are you doing? 
What is happening? That has got to be excruciating. It's just not right. It is not right what you're doing to that key. I object. But the maker of the key then takes it to the lock in a hidden door. And he slides it into the lock and it fits perfectly. Not one cut, not one grind has been without purpose. He turns it, opens that hidden door. It opens onto everything new, reborn, made right. God is up to something. He's fitting you for something. He is fitting you for something and he knows how hard it is. He cries with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never desert you. The book of Isaiah says, I will be with you when you walk through the fire. I will be with you. Peter says, God's power is standing watch, protecting you. In verse eight, Peter says, although you haven't seen Jesus, you still love him. Although you don't yet see him, you do believe in him and celebrate with a joy that is glorious and beyond words. And you are receiving the salvation of your souls as the result of your faith. Job ends chapter 42 after this long spin out of sermons that were not accurate at all by his friends, some of the greatest long-windedest sermons of all time. And God comes and he tells the friends, shut up. And he tells them they're in trouble. And he looks at Job and Job looks at him and he says, before suffering, I'd only heard of you, but now I have seen you. And it says, Job prayed for his friends and everything began to change. And reading Nightbird, Jane's blog, she wrote a, a really profound one a few weeks ago. God is on the bathroom floor. I just wanna read it to you as we close. I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer. And for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, three to six months to live, after the man I married two weeks after that said he didn't love me anymore and he left and divorced me. When my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a, a physical head trauma and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I just laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and, and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. 
I fear sometimes when I die and meet with God that he's gonna say, I disappointed him or offended him or, or, or failed him. Or maybe he'll say, I just never learned the lesson that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, sometimes demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I'm in it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day. Sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That would be fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale. I have laid in his shadow. I've squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout of the bathroom floor. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his strong arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land. Instead, he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't even pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Big deal. Fire lit their path every night, but going nowhere. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it mana, mana, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I'm gonna keep repeating until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned. That's not all. Call me chosen. Call me blessed. Call me sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I'm the one whose belly is filled with the loaves of mercy that were hidden just for me. Even on days now when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy. I can't really explain it, but God is in there on the bathroom floor, even now. I've heard it said, 
from many people. I just can't see God. And I know why. They're not looking low enough. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Chris Cuomo was interviewing her and I had it in the last service, but since it's being blocked, I'm not gonna put it up there. His life, he's going like, I mean, the cynical man on CNN is going, I cried. I, I, I mean, he's just, listen to every word she says. He said, you've changed me. I've seen this. And then he asked her, why, why Nightbird? You know what she said? She said, that's a great story. She said, for three nights in a row, I dreamed that there were birds outside my window in the middle of the night, in the dark, singing in the tree outside my window. The third night, I woke up and I, it seemed so real. I went to the window and amazingly, the tree was filled with birds and they were singing at the top of their lungs. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. It's pitch black outside, but they're singing as if the dawn is here, even when there's no proof that there will ever be another dawn. And so she named herself Nightbird. I want you to be one of God's Nightbirds. Dawn is coming. I know it's black, it's dark, it's difficult. I know you can't see your hand in front of your face. I've asked the band to come. Nico's gonna sing for us. We're gonna take communion because I want you to take that question to the one on the cross. You got the bread in the cup there when you walked in. I want you to do it a little different if you're one of those that likes to gather in a circle and do it with the family. I want you to do it a little different this time. I don't want you to talk. I want it just to be you and God. So each one in the family, you and God, you take the bread and the cup for yourself and listen to these words. And when you decide, I will believe these words, you stand up, okay? After you've taken the bread and the cup. And I'm not asking you to stand. If half of us are still sitting, that's fine with me. Be real, be honest. This is a a place where you can be authentic. We'll just love you. We're in this together. We're doing this together. Nightbird, she said, Jesus is all over this. And he's here. He's the living hope. He's here right now. Nico, come and lead us.